0: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Dress listeners, if you suffer from seasonal allergies like me, Astapro is your new go-to. It has been super helpful to me this spring as it bursts into full bloom. And that's because
1: Astapro is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter solution for
0: nasal allergy
1: symptoms. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It starts
0: working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray, and Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. You too can get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief like I have with Astapro. It gets me back in the game, ready to record the show for all of you. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for
1: a discount so you can Astapro and go today. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Ask Pro and Go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.
2: Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com. For all the great deals happening now. Save big money at the Dress
1: the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed.
0: Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy
1: Zachary. Dress listeners, May 2nd marks the return of the Met Gala to its regularly scheduled programming. That is the first Monday in May after two years. So, so excited. Of course, this is the Oscars for fashion and fashion history, right, April? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Waiting with bated breath.
1: Yes, exactly. (laughs) So excited. And this particular Met Gala is unprecedented, actually, in that it's the second gala held in accordance with just one exhibition. In America, an anthology of fashion was divided into two parts, and the first launched last fall, and the second will be launching next week.
0: Yes, and our listeners may well remember that we had a thing or two to say about the fashions on view at last year's event, (laughs) largely and mainly our disappointment that European high fashion brands sponsorship really kind of prevailed on the runway over meaningful engagement with the exhibitions and gala's theme, which is of course celebrating American design. You know, it was such a wonderful opportunity to showcase the incredible range and talent of contemporary American fashion designers, but so many attendees just kind of missed the mark by wearing European designers.
1: Yes, they did. And if you're interested in our thoughts, you can definitely head back and check out our FHN on that very topic. But of course, someone who did not miss the mark was the attendee Jordan Roth. And the Broadway impresario has quickly become, April, one of my all-time favorite red carpet attendees. I think you agree with me. Yes, for sure. (laughs) My favorite fashion guest at last year's festivities and the one before that, for that matter. Last year, I just remember feeling so disappointed in all the European fashion on the red carpet. It was like one after another. And then on walks Jordan Roth. And I audibly gasped. He was wearing this regal, ground-sweeping collage coat. Not a single piece of the surface was left unadorned. It was this kaleidoscope of color and vibrancy that just leapt off the screen.
0: The Coat was a collaboration between Jordan and fiber artist and queer activist, Michael Sylvan Robinson. And the more we learned about their collaboration and learned about Sylvan's work, the more we knew we had to get Sylvan on the show because it's just one of the most high profile examples of their incredible artistic oeuvre, which spans decades and explores the intersections of textiles and dress with a broad range of themes from identity, gender, and sexuality to violence, protest, and healing. So we are so pleased to finally welcome Sylvan to the show. Sylvan, welcome to Dressed.
2: I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Yes, I am so excited to talk to you today. Uh, Our listeners will remember that we spoke about you on our Met Gala episode. Um, Highly, highly praised your work and your collaboration with Jordan Roth. And we will talk about that a little bit later on in the episode. But first, I want to learn about you and your artwork and your approach to art Starting with the question, do you have an earliest memory of clothing or textiles, one that maybe stuck with you or maybe informed your connection to textiles as a form of human expression?
2: Well, as a little person, my family lived in Europe for a short period of time. And when I came back to the States in the late 70s, I definitely had a very different way of dressing uh, than what the suburban neighborhood that my family moved back into was willing to accept. So I think my initial understanding around clothing was that I wanted to wear things that often other people were going to have a negative reaction to. And that I think over the course of time, I've really come back. Also, I want want to say that generationally, we've had an improved understanding that clothing and what we wear and the ideas of the questions of gender are all much different than they were when I was a child. And I think of myself as a person who's really engaged in that conversation in an active way uh, now at kind of a midlife moment, especially as an educator. I think that my students have a much wider band of acceptance and understanding that asking people how they want to be addressed, shared, celebrated is a much bigger component of, of their experience than it was of mine. But I vividly remember sort of having a pair of Wooden yellow clogs from Amsterdam that I just loved Lovely. as a little person, <laughs> and uh, and for which there was a fair amount of teasing me or bullying me as a result of me wanting to wear them to school and to to be celebrated for them. Uh, I think I would rock them now again if I had the opportunity. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's super interesting when you think about what you're taught uh, as a child, right? You're already being taught by society to fit into these certain gender roles. And, and one of the main ways in which that is um, imposed on children is through the clothing that they wear, the colors of clothing that they can wear and how they can wear it. And and like you said, today, those conversations are changing, but I was certainly raised that way. And I know a lot of our listeners were as well.
2: And I think that color is actually a big component of that for me as a 70s child I definitely had a, a sort of a saturated color-on-color color kind of attraction. Uh, I actually remember that my family let me, when we got back to the States, I was allowed to you know, have some choice on what my room looked like. And I vividly remember uh, choosing this shag, orange, red, and yellow rug. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to mix in with this sort of like, fluorescent neon wallpaper. And my parents were you know, not pleased, but had basically said that I could have some design choices of my own. And I think that often, especially when I started to costume design, you know, much later in life, I often had to sort of say to people, I'm not the minimalist designer. If you really want color and pattern use, those are things that are, are always going to be my ingredients, but I might not be the best match for you if, if you want something that's more monochromatic. And I think, you know, sometimes that's included people sort of wanting to sort of scold me for color use that's not traditional, or that can be kind of uh, jarring or, or kind of clashing. And in some ways, that's just encouraged me to just dig in deeper into those <laughs> contradictions. Uh, and that's obviously true of a lot of my work is really layers and layers and layers of, of color and texture in, in a very visceral way. And I've I've grown to understand that And it was one of the advantages of working with with Jordan Roth was he was not afraid to have me continue to kind of go in that direction and to be able to really pull my sense of color and pattern together.
1: Yeah. And you've actually kind of led me into my next question because you mentioned you were a costume designer. And I think that's one of the foundational, at least um, guiding aspects as to how you became a fiber artist, or at least was one of the part of your journey to becoming a fiber artist. I'd love if you could tell us a little bit more about what brought you to textiles as an artistic
2: medium. Yeah, actually, uh, costumes came my way through through a couple of different focuses. And one of which was that when I was an undergrad at Bennington, I was a dance and theater major, and I was using clothing in a performance art way to create pieces that were kind of neither dance nor theater. And again, I think that nowadays we understand that maybe even more differently. I wouldn't have described myself as kind of ahead of the curve at that point, but I do think that the way Today, that idea of clothing, garment, costume as part of a as part of a vivid aspect of sort of sculptural performance art uh, were things that I was already playing with in the eighties in a way that. Is still true today, and uh, so I kind of came in through a dance lens, clothing as part of movement, and and then right out of out of college, I started teaching drama at the school that I'm currently the head of arts at at the poly prep school in Brooklyn, and part of my initial teaching position included costume designing the five main stage shows that we do there. And Polly invested in some basic you know construction skills for me, and and I actually had a pretty decent post-school costume career. I mean, I've always, I've always been teaching and costumes were a big part of my teaching work for a long time, but I was able to start, you know, working kind of at, you know, on an off, off Broadway level in my first New York chapter. And it didn't actually really, I think part of it is that I didn't really like the requirements of dressing uh, actors in ways that weren't as performative as the garment making themselves. So I had a kind of a a little bit of a falling out with costume design, kind of at the tail end of, of, of some really good success, because I I realized that if I didn't want to make clothing for actors, I probably shouldn't be a costume designer. <laughs> it's really one of the requirements. Uh, and then I gave up making clothing for people for quite some time. And when I went back to grad school, I went to Goddard's interdisciplinary program. I took my costume design skills and turned that into fiber work uh, for gallery and sculptural work. And I was really resistant to dressing living people for quite some time. So that, that transition of maybe of being a little bit not wanting the costume connotation connected to my work actually for a long time meant that I was making clothing deliberately for the absence of a body, right? They were memorial, they were sculptural, they were holding space. It's a big part of of my activist work as well. And then eventually I started to dress myself again, right? Things to wear for political actions as part of a case against guns, things that I wanted to wear almost in my own performative way. And then just last spring, this invitation to make work for a vibrant, celebratory living body. uh, And the idea that actually maybe even that 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 was actually fashion, uh, that it was a word I had never allowed myself to kind of really apply to my work. Uh, So in the spring, uh, when my work was featured in Vogue Germany, which is how I ended up getting the Met Gala Commission, uh, Guinevere Vincenis photographed a piece of mine, a very personal wearable work I didn't imagine would be worn by anyone other than maybe me uh, for Vogue Germany. And I went to Casa Magazine and bought the copy of Vogue Germany with my work in it. And the way that as a younger queer person in New York, I would go and kind of go and look at every fashion magazine and and make the choice of like which magazine could I afford to to spend my hard-earned school teacher salary on uh, for collage purposes or for inspiration. And I just never thought fashion would welcome. I, I, I believe that I never even allowed myself to dream that fashion could be one of the directions that my work went into. And, and now I'm, I mean, feel like that's one of the major questions I have for myself moving forward is, what do I want to do? You know, what, how, how do I want to bring all these things together?
1: Yeah, and that's something I love about your work because you really demonstrate the multifaceted dimensions of clothing because you have clothing that's not even meant to be worn, but it still is imbued with so much meaning and power on a wall versus the meaning and power it imbues on a body, for instance. And so you really demonstrate that diverse range of the power of dress.
2: Yeah. One of my pieces, you know, uh, I do these memorial garments for my work with Gays Against Guns that archive names and and histories of people who were killed by gun violence. And so I, i I make one a year. So I made one last year for 2020 and I'm, I'm now finishing the one for 2021. And I've worn the garment in actions as part of marshalling. So there's a visible presence of those names. But then of course, that piece traveled to the Wisconsin Museum of Quilt and Fiber Art and is being shown in Tennessee right now. And so it's also a way that that clothing and the and the absence of a person inside the clothing is also helping hold and share stories kind of across the nation around this question around the impact of gun violence on on Americans, which is uh, is, an astounding, astounding level of people uh, impacted by gun violence.
1: And I want to definitely talk to you a little bit more about the intersections of your activism and your fiber art. But first, I'm hoping you can just introduce listeners to what your art is. I'm sure they've Googled you already at this point and, and have an idea, but can you tell us a little bit about your process and your approach? Because as I've mentioned, you really have this multifaceted approach to clothing that um, really explores these intersections of politics, identity, art, textiles, dress, clothing, all of these different things.
2: Great. Yeah. I All of my work starts with the textile collage process. So I am a eager collector of Uh, small pieces of fabric. Sometimes people give me things uh, and I've come back to that. I think initially, initially I was very enamored with using uh, vintage materials uh, as part of that process. And then, of course, one of the challenges is that often those materials don't hold up well, especially if you're going to do sculptural work with them, right? So I, but I have come back to using a fair amount of what I would describe as hybrid quilt techniques. I'm not a quilter per se, but that work really Firmly is anchored in some of the things that I do. So a lot of handwork, piecing pieces together, sometimes quite fragile, and other times just regular cotton print uh, materials. And then I do an extensive amount of handwork, embroidery, hand beading, hand sequining, the decorative work, I think, is a, a way that I highlight things. So particularly on a memorial garment, the, the absolute, the deliberate use of, of Luxurious ingredients is a way of sort of imbuing um, beauty and honor in something that might actually be rather intense. And then I work with a combination of different sizes. So I do make doll-sized pieces. When I first moved back to New York uh, four years ago, I actually made these doll-sized textile one-phrase intention pieces. So there's always like a text detail as well that I hand stencil or embroider or or print on uh, the garments. And I just went around Bushwick and hung them up in, in barbed wire and in trees and things like that. And, and some, of the, I, some of them were up for quite some time. Other ones were, as, a, as New Yorkers maybe would understand, could be quickly reclaimed by other people who were like, oh, I like this artwork that I just saw in the tree. <laughs> I'm going to go <laughs> bring that home now. Or photograph it and document it in that way that street art came. And I really appreciated... I think, in some ways, the street art world of the '90s New York that I grew up in is very different than the street art New York of right now, which I think has a lot more varied media use. So I've I've also found myself kind of enamored of of letting street art be a bigger influence on my textile work, and then I do make clothing. I really like vintage patterns. So uh, right now I'm into sort of 1960s mod and different 60s shape pattern, uh, vintage patterns that I'm then using the textile collage technique to really kind of make my own in that way. And I think part of that also that that there's a, a a two-dimensionalness or a, a way in which that work is is more readable, even if there's not a body in it, right? That the caftan or the uh, kite dress have these kind of great shapes that then make my work show up uh, maybe more, more visibly. But I like the idea that things can be viewed all around or they can be hung on the wall, especially the doll-sized pieces can be hung as mobiles. Uh, I tend to be not as interested in having my work like on a dress form uh, if I don't have to, because obviously that has a very different next round of things. I'm not opposed to it, but I think that if I were going to pursue that further, I might actually need to start thinking about like what kind of sculptural form lived under them in a more permanent way. But I have shown work on on the dress form as well. But if so, I tend to like the the vintage forms because then they have that additional sculptural element as well. And I do make two-dimensional work. I know it's not the most commonly visible component of my work, but I do things like what I would call wall hangings or smaller work that can be framed as well. And I do think that some of the, particularly the doll size pieces, could actually end up in vitrines and be viewed in that way as well. That might also give them a little bit of protection. Uh, I don't show them that way in my house, but I understand that other people might have a harder time uh, just pinning a dress to the wall like I do. <laughs>
1: So what do you think a garment conveys without needing to be worn? Because obviously you connect to clothing and your audience, the viewers of your artwork, can connect to clothing with it being on a wall, with it being on a hanger or a dress form. So what do you think it is about clothing that draws you to it and draws people to have this really meaningful connection with your work?
2: That's a really great question in a way, and I'm going to share two different pieces of work from the past that really greatly influence my inspiration and that I always come back to. Like So these are the two most pivotal clothing pieces for me that have been sort of lifetime inspiring. And one of them is the Agnes Richter um, seamstress dress from the Victorian era. She was a seamstress in Germany in 1895 who was institutionalized for, in quotations, erratic behavior and hand-embroidered her personal narrative, both on the inside and the outside of this garment that she wore. So it's actually, you know, kind of, uh, it shows the, the signs of wear. And then it was rediscovered in 1980 and is now in a museum. And, and it's a, such a feminist story, right? One, her attempt to resist oppression or society policing her uh, and that holding on to her own narrative. And I use that idea of like the inside and outside of a garment a lot. So sometimes the outside of the garment is what I want the world to hear. And the inside of the garment is maybe a more personal or more intimate uh, narrative version. I did use some of this technique on the Jordan Roth Met Gala garment as well. It has his words embroidered both on the inside and on the outside of the garment. Uh, And so it's a technique that I I I revisit a lot, and that piece is so haunting in its you know the 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 person who wore that garment has been gone for a long time. We hold her story and know her name in part because of the strength of her craft and the and the words that she chose to use uh, needle and thread to be able to, to memorialize. So that's one. The other one is the David Wojnarowicz uh, activist jacket. In 1988, he wore uh, a denim jacket with a pink triangle and the text, if I die of AIDS, forget burial, just drop my body on the steps of the FDA. And that jacket is really one that we see in photographs. Right, so there's a photograph of a live action that he wore this this piece in, and that's one of the vivid act up queer activism of the 90s uh, moments captured in a photograph, uh, and then often reshared. Right, in a world HJ just came by, and it's a you know frequently shared uh, photo from that era. And I think about that a lot. That an activist garment needs an immediately understandable message. Right. So if you're wearing clothing at an action and it's got a slogan on it, you you need it to be able to be able to be seen and viewed and understood and responded to. And I think that's that's probably one of the most impactful garments that had a real moment and a real action, and a photograph captured it, and it's now a, a part of history in a way that we come back to. And I think that some of my Days of Guns Guns work may also have that kind of Goal right. It's going to be photographed. I, I mean, I, I made a garment for the Pulse Memorial this past spring. Was the five year we were marking five years. I wore the I had all the names on it, and you know, and, and was photographed by Vogue. Uh, and so it shows up in that way. There's something about the use of garment and clothing and and text based work for me as well that that captures attention, speaks to something evocative.
1: Yeah, and I think it's also because we all wear clothing. It's this instantly relatable and often aspirational aspect of our lives that we can all connect to in a very intimate way. And so I find it so fascinating when you can connect with clothing as art, clothing as costume, clothing as fashion, clothing as activism, as you demonstrate. And your work demonstrates all of these different facets. So I'm such
0: a huge fan. Dress listeners, did you know that you can save on everything from fashion to beauty, home decor to groceries, even kids' school supplies with Rakuten? Rakuten is a shopping platform
1: that partners with over 3,500 stores across every category. Beauty, clothing, electronics, home, department stores, pets, you name it. You're already shopping at your favorite stores, so why not be saving while doing it? It really is a no-brainer. How does it work, you
0: ask? Well, stores pay Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the commission with its members. You get paid via a check or PayPal quarterly. Membership
1: is free and it's easy to sign up. So join the 17 million members who have already saved at their favorite brands. Start all your shopping at Rakuten.com or get the Rakuten app to start saving today. Your cashback really adds up. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.com.
0: Dress listeners, whatever your reason for wanting to learn a new language, whether it's an upcoming international adventure, communicating with your friends and family abroad, or even professional purposes, Rosetta Stone has got you covered. As
1: the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years now, you can join millions of Rosetta Stone users to learn any of the 25 languages offered. That includes Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and
0: so many more. And this is fast language acquisition, friends. There are no English translations, so you learn to speak listen, and think in your new language. And right now you can get lifetime access to all 25 of Rosetta Stone's language courses for 50% off. That's language learning for 25 languages for the rest of your life, which Cass is
1: frankly amazing. It is. And what are you waiting for, dress listeners? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, dress listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward
0: slash today. Menopause, perimenopause, These can be some of the most uncomfortable phases of a woman's life. If you find yourself in either of these, well, Hormone Harmony is here for you. Hormone Harmony capsules contain science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone
1: Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no
0: compromise
1: when it comes to quality, and it really shows. And
0: get this. Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any woman with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it. But it is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. And for a limited
1: time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code DRESSED at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code DRESSED for 15% off today. Your work is like a visual feast for the eye as well. It's this kaleidoscope of art influences, as you've said, historical influences. It's incredibly engaging. Every time I look at it, I find something new to focus on and something new to inquire about. And this is clearly on evidence in the Jordan Roth coat, which I keep looking at and I keep finding new and amazing things to enjoy about this garment. He always brings it to the red carpet, let's just say that. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows who Jordan Roth is. I mean, he is hands down one of today's most exciting fashion icons. Anytime he's on the red carpet, you know he's gonna wear something exquisite, but also just so much thought and care goes into the pieces that he puts on his body. And what he wore to this year's Met Gala in America Lexicon of Fashion was the theme, was no exception, and that was because he wore this stunning piece by you. Can you tell us about this collaboration and about the inspiration behind your piece?
2: When my work was featured in Vogue Germany, it came to the attention of, of Michael Philo's Vogue men's editor. He then connected and matchmade match made me and Jordan. And we had a, a kind of an extensive process uh, of sort of discussing what we might create. I will be honest, for a good chunk of the time, I was sure that at some point they were going to say, we love you, but we're not picking you for this event, right <laughs> so i I went into it kind of just thinking, "This is great, And when you don't choose me, it's going to be fine. And this was just a lovely connection right um, mm-hmm. they They have a different version, which is that in some ways, from the get go, there was this moment of meeting me coming out of the pandemic, Roth really wanting something that was more artistic, more. Uh, activist-rooted in ways, particularly around gender expression. And also we talked a little bit about the fact that sometimes, particularly as, uh, for me, I identify as genderqueer, and there are times in which more femme clothing can be both uh, objectified and celebrated, and also a way that you can be then used against you and written off later on. And I think that one of the things that we talked about in the initial conversation was, I really wanted the garment now, I'm, I'm going to use a word that no one would probably use to describe this piece, but easy to wear. <laughs> and I laugh because obviously it's got like a seven foot train. So it wasn't really easy to wear. But I mean, in terms of the fact that I wanted there to be a, a quality of protection, of care, that the textile work and that particularly because I, I, I had initially proposed to use. Uh, written words that Jordan Roth had shared as part of the proposal process. And those are the only words on the on the garment. So both inside in the lining and also across the surface of the piece are Jordan's words. And you know, they're embroidered or sequined or beaded. And that was a really personal process. And I was so grateful that that was something that kind of in, intrigued him and interested him. And one of the things that was kind of nice about that was we had this great conversation around an activist clothing has a slogan that you're reading like a billboard, maybe. And and Jordan and I talked a lot about the dress being read, but not necessarily always a signpost, but more like an invitation into the conversation, more than a, here's what it means. And I really appreciated the ways that that Jordan really, like, this was an area that we had a lot of conversation about, and I think it makes the piece stronger. I tend to sort of want to just sort of spray paint what I want it to say on the, on the outside. And I think that what I love is that there's a sort of street art and activism feel to the piece, but you're really having to kind of follow this journey that it's asking you to sort of look more deeply at. And obviously we had a lot of conversation around the genderedness of clothing, people often say, is it a coat? Is it a gown? Is it a... And I think it's like all of those things and none of those things, uh, which I think is also part of its success is that it has these historical references, but then it's not. And then some new things. And, uh, you know, it's got this kind of, you know, coat of many colors kind of thing as well. Um, when, it, when we showed up in The New Yorker as a cartoon, I particularly thought we had really hit kind of a cultural <laughs> yes. moment. That was definitely a high point. Yes, absolutely. And the other thing I just want to say is that for me, one of the great excitements about this project was the invitation to work with Michael and and Bill Ball, the uh, dressmaker master technician uh, who works with Vogue all the time. So one of the things that came my way was an opportunity to do me with like the master class of the top, top professionals, uh, including Jordan, who knows, you know, has a very clear idea of what uh, he wants to wear and why and fashion. And and this idea of choosing someone not from a fashion house per se, but to work with so individually was such a gift. Uh, I feel like a life-changing gift for sure. And Bill Ball worked so closely with me on the construction and was kind of protective of me. I think often, you know, had to keep sort of saying, you just keep doing all this handwork and we will continue to make sure it, you know, it fits the way it's supposed to. And, and the, uh, all the alterations and tailoring go the, to the degree that is expected of this category. I think there was a moment where I finally watched it walk out the door of the Mark Hotel in Jordan into this you know sea of, of people taking the photographs. And up until that moment, I hadn't really thought about what would happen afterwards? I'd just been so focused on, on all the extensive handwork that I didn't really, in some ways, maybe was a little un, underprepared for this sort of moment where that work walked out on such a, a, a ginormous scale of attention and, and, and opportunity.
1: And I'm just going to go on record and say, hands down, one of the absolute best, <laughs> best <laughs> ensembles on view that evening.
2: (laughs) Well, and I think that also this was this theme that just sort of developed kind of, so initially it was, you know, American identity or American design. And then as the event actually came closer, quilt imagery and quilt language became a bigger part of the, the brief. And I feel like for us, that was really the starting point. And then to sort of end up in the place where, uh, you know, that work was being kind of at the at the heart of a lot of what was showing up, is this idea of this um, clothing and fashion as an American quilt, I think is quite a metaphor. The other thing I'll just say is that I, when I knew the commission was mine, uh, I reached out to a friend who, Valerie uh, Marcus Ramshaw, who's the uh, head of the costume design program at Rutgers, and immediately said, I'm going to need some help really quickly uh, <laughs> and gained uh, a number of former students from that program uh, and from costume design technicians. So in some ways, I went back to my costume roots to really get this project done, right? I knew that actually the people who were going to bring the techniques that I, I wanted to use in a very artful, sculptural, wearable art way, that actually the getting it done really needed to come back to costume people. Uh, and I had a great team of, of young people who work with me very closely and uh, for which their handwork is really embedded in that tapestry as well.
1: Wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And how long did it take you to construct it?
2: So the finished garment pre-alterations arrived back in my studio in July and then the entire surface and the inside <laughs> because there's also some some detail work on the inner lining all that handwork had to happen between July and September 13th so I think I had seven weeks in a lovely way it was a little bit like being Rumpelstiltskin right which I just had to keep spinning gold and spinning gold and spinning gold and uh, and the studio was just covered in you know the gold sequins and 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 detritus from all that that handwork uh, for quite some time but the team really really brought it home for me i mean we just you know masked, working on the floor sitting under different layers of the of the train working together was really there were a lot of hands on this
1: so i want to talk a little bit more about the meaning behind the garment and the meaning that's literally hand sewn into this piece because Jordan has talked about the conception and the idea behind it. He told Vogue, "When I knew what the exhibition would be exploring, I immediately went to the idea of identity and how, for me, identity is a construction, just as a garment is a construction." Can you talk a little bit about how you worked that concept into this design?
2: Yeah, and that's actually one of the major text details. That's all hand sequined on the bottom of the train is identity is a construction, Uh, and I think that that idea that we wear. Our identities in some ways, and, and particularly if you are a person in the world for whom identity is, a, is often a politicized experience, whether you chose to or not, right? So I think about the way that clothing for women is, you know, is always politicized, whether or not uh, the, the woman wearing it thinks so or not, right? That women's clothing is often policed and scrutinized and, and judged in ways that wearing a, a men's suit is less less so, right? So if you're wearing the good tuxedo on the red carpet, you're not under as much scrutiny as, as a counterpart in a couture gown or, or being Billy Porter in some wonderful mix of, of tux and, and gown.
1: I was going to say, unless it's Billy Porter in a tux ball gown, in which case you're going to be under a lot of scrutiny.
2: <laughs> Correct. Uh, and then we also talked a lot about the ways in which there can be pressure to be wearing things to open space for other people. Uh, And that that idea that there's some additional weight on what you're wearing because you're you're making space for people to come. And I think that that's partially where, for me, that that I often use the the symbols of the eye uh, as part of 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 my regular garments. And I think of that in a protection way, as well as a counter projection right? So that some ways the garment is looking back at the people who are looking at it. Uh, you know, you're know, you seeing me or you're seeing what you want layered on top of me, but I'm also looking back and or reflecting back what it is that I want to be seen or shown. And so I, we had a, a, a great collaborative time talking about the ways that those could be shared. And I think that there's a way in which for me, the beauty of the piece is also partially the invitation, right? So the, the, the embellishment, the sort of the decorative element is an invitation to reach the deeper meanings, right? So you're, you're all dazzled by it's so beautiful, and then you find your way thinking about what does it mean to be projecting identity on somebody else or to be living in a body that is on the receiving end of both uh, sometimes wanted and unwanted attention. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I braced myself for a little bit in the reception of this was that whether or not I might receive more, you know, hateful social media uh, Attention, as someone who often has to sort of navigate that already. Uh, and then I'll, I will say primarily for that, anytime that I'm talking about anti-gun violence, that tends to be particularly where right. <laughs> that, that kind of focus comes. <laughs> and that's sort of the the conversation we're having. I didn't want necessarily that to be a component of what was the reception for Jordan at this moment. You know, I wanted this to be something that was a gorgeous imitation to this idea of identity, the clothing we wear, this moment in America, something that came out of art and activism and gender exploration, to be worn by, in some ways, the absolute most wonderful muse anyone could create a garment for on this category, right?
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Well, I absolutely know that you succeeded in achieving that. This is an absolutely beautiful garment inside and out, literally and figuratively. I cannot say enough wonderful things about it and your work. Sylvan, thank you so much for being here. This has been such a treat.
2: It has been a wonder. I'm a big fan and, and thrilled to be on the podcast. I, I actually, uh, it's one of the invitations that came my way that just thought, oh, I'm being invited to have the kind of conversation that I most want to have, right? With people who are, uh, knowledgeable of fashion history, who are interested in clothing, and who are uh, interested in having the conversation about fashion and clothing be a really broad menu. Uh, and your work in that has been uh, a big part of that. So thank you so much for for the invitation.
0: Oh, well, thank you.
1: That really means a lot. Sylvan,
0: thank you for joining us. It's always illuminating and inspiring to speak with contemporary artists who not only work within the medium of dress and textiles, but also to engage with its history in really profound and thought-provoking ways.
1: Yeah, and Sylvan's work is just so multifaceted and compelling as I'm sure you got from that interview. And we actually did not get to speak about it, but they have this fascinating ongoing project called The Burning Times, which they began in 2006. And it honors the men and women killed during America's witch trial era in the 17th century. So dress listeners, you can learn more about this project and Sylvan's other work at their website, michaelsylvanrobinsonart.com. That is also their Instagram handle. And we will, of course, provide links in the episode description. And that is M-I-C-H-A-E-L- S-Y-L-V-A-N-R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N-Art.com. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the art and activism of the clothing in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So please email us at dress at iheartmedia.com. Be sure and check out our Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you will find images to accompany each week's episodes. As always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio, who makes the show possible
0: each and every week. More Dress coming your way on Thursday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.